Be seated. Well, we've done something weird this morning already. Uh, we didn't just read Psalm 9, which is where we are, but we've also read Psalm 10 in addition to Psalm 9. And uh, Jesse didn't miss the chapter break when he kept on reading. We did that intentionally, though it did catch me by surprise this week as I was preparing to study. What we originally planned was I was going to preach Psalm 9, and then Tate next week was going to pick up in Psalm 10. Um, but as Tate and I were looking at uh, our psalms, we both realized, wow, our psalms are really similar in theme and even in the words that are, that are being said. But not only that, but as I continue to study, come to find out, Psalm 9 and 10 actually form a, a single acrostic poem and something that you wouldn't see in your English Bibles because uh, the, the, the psalms were written in Hebrew. Um, but what that means is basically the first line of every uh, line in the psalm is a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and so for that reason, I do think it's worth putting Psalm 9 and 10 together as it seems like it is meant to go together. Uh, but not only that, um, not just the common words and the common theme and not just the, the acrostic poem, but, but the structure of both psalms together form what is called a chiasm. And I, I want to teach you what a chiasm is this morning because I think it's going to help us understand this large chunk of text and our short time that we have. Uh, so there's a chart I want to put up on the screen for you. A chiasm is a, a way that Hebrew poems are often formed by pairing themes together, uh, all working their way towards the center of the poem. And so uh, it, it starts introducing its first theme, and then later on it'll introduce a second theme. And as we're going to see, it could go on and on, but today's just has three different themes, today's psalm. And then after that third theme is introduced, it goes back to the second theme again that was introduced earlier, and then it finishes where it begins on theme one. And so uh, for the sake of today, I'm going to give you some cheater notes once again. Here's Psalm 9 and 10's chiasm and the, the way they break down in verses and chapters in this case, uh, so that you can see where about David has these different thought breaks throughout the psalm. And this is going to help us navigate this morning as we work our way through these two psalms. Uh, psalm 9 and 10's chiasm, though, the theme that we see all together is is a longing for God to be just and to execute justice against the wicked. And, and just to help highlight why I think it's important to keep these two Psalms together is because if we were just to start in Psalm 10, we would spend most of our time this morning looking at David's perplexity. And that's what Psalm 10 shows us. David, he's confused and perplexed by God's character and the inconsistencies, inconsistencies, excuse me, from what he knows of God compared to what God is doing in his midst. Let's, let's start in chapter 10 uh, at the center of this chiasm and, and look at verse one. David says this, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You see, David is confused. He's asking questions of God because what he knows of God is not consistent with what is happening before his eyes. David is, is in trouble. The poor in his midst are in trouble. And it seems as if God doesn't even care, lest even notice what's going on. God, who is supposed to be a very present help in times of trouble here, David says, you're gone. 
You're far away. You've, you've hidden your face from us. And all the while, the wicked, they go on from bad to worse, unpunished, not being brought into account for what they have done, and not just against the poor, but against God as well. <laughs> Let's listen to the entirety of, of verses 1 through 11, and you'll catch why he is so puzzled. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. I want verse 11 to ring in our ears this morning because this is what the wicked believe. This is the, what the wicked say in their heart, that God has forgotten the poor. God has hidden his face from them. And God, he will never see it. He will be ignorant of all my wickedness. And David is just about to agree with the assessment of the wicked. Look again at verse one. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I wonder how many of us here this morning are asking the same questions of the Lord. And if you're left asking these questions just as David here is, the rest of us might be wondering, are they going to escape from this snare? Are they going to come out having kept the faith or are they going to sink in despair and leave God all together and renounce him and join with the wicked in believing that God has hidden his face? Well, if you recall from the Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character named Pliable and he's barely on his journey to the celestial city, that is to the heavenly gates, before he falls into a great trial and gives up and returns back to the city of destruction. He, he falls into this pit, the slew of despond. And then falling in the pit, he says, it's not worth it. And he gives up and he goes back to his old way of life. You see, Pliable, he's not unlike many other professors who come to faith so eagerly and quickly. They believe in Jesus because he promises so many good things. He promises no more pain, no more tears one day. He promises that you will have joy, unending joy, unlike anything the world has to offer. He promises life everlasting. And yet there are many who are like pliable, who, who eagerly sprout up, 
believing in Jesus like that seed that's sown among rocky ground. And yet when hard time comes along, when the sun beats against that plant or against your faith, it withers and dies and amounts to nothing. You see, Christian, you ought to know this. Our Lord, yes, he has promised very good rewards for those who love him. But he has also promised us that in this world, we will have trouble. And you might even be in the middle of trials now. And so I do hope and pray that Psalm 9 and 10 together will be a means of grace by which you will be able to escape the slew of despond. You see, if we were left to just look at Psalm 10 by itself this morning, we, we would spend most of our time just looking at the traits and attributes of the wicked. We would spend a good amount of time listening to the lies in which they have come to believe and that which they would even want you to believe all the same. But what we see here is David, his trial doesn't begin in chapter 10. Oh no, his his faith doesn't just all of a sudden start here in the midst of his adversity, but it, it goes all the way back to chapter nine. And what I think we see here is, is a set of rhythms for the righteous, rhythms that are set in place by God, given to us here in the Psalms so that when we fall into a similar trial as David, we would not be destroyed by them, but instead we would keep the faith. Because while Psalm 10 talks so much about the, the characteristics of the wicked, when you look at Psalm 9 and 10, you see the predominant theme is the characteristics and traits of our God. So I don't want us to just try to, to make it in the day when adversity comes. You see, we know better than to think that one day you can just wake up and run a marathon but instead an athlete must train themselves and discipline their bodies so that when the day comes that they will run the race, they will run it well. And similarly, parents know this and kids in the room, you know this too. You don't just wake up on the day you turn 18 and decide to be an adult, but rather like that marathon runner before, it takes years of discipline and training a child so that when adulthood comes, they will be prepared to enter into the world as an adult and not a child. And so to you, Christian, you ought to, to look at the trials that are coming ahead. The Lord said they will come. And I want us to learn the rhythms that, that David himself learned so that when trials come, you might keep the faith. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, we will, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I do think Psalm 9 and 10 are a means of grace that God has given us. That is a, a way of escape. And so we can look at the temptation that David faced so that we too can learn from him and escape just as he does. And so let's look at the beginning now of these two Psalms back at Psalm 9, and what we see here in the, the chiasm, what we see is, is David prays. And so the center of it, yeah, he's perplexed, but at the very beginning, David, he, he starts by giving praises to God for what he has done. You see Psalm 10, 
It seems like it's a psalm of lament, but at the very start of it all, it is a psalm of praise. Look at Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. You see, before David ever felt abandoned by God in Psalm 10, he had personally experienced God in his deliverance here in Psalm 9, which in turn caused him to bubble up in praise for what God has done. He says, I want to recount what you have done, Lord. I want to exult in you. And so he does just that. David in the, the following verses in this section is going to just recount all the wonderful things that God has done. Verses three and four, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. David has experienced God's deliverance personally. He knows what it means for God to punish the wicked. He knows what it means for God to maintain justice. You see, he has done more than just heard of God's justice and his faithfulness, but he has tasted and seen of the goodness of God. Specifically, he knows of God's righteous judgment against the wicked. And so he continues, verses five and six, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end, an everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. You see, King David, he knows the history of his nation. Yes, he's the king of Israel, but Israel did not start with King David. In fact, Israel did not even start in the land in which they had possessed. But instead, before Israel was ever Israel, it was Canaan. And before Canaan belonged to the Israelites, it belonged to the Canaanites. But God rooted up their cities, and instead of these wicked nations, he planted his choice vine there in the land. And the mighty Pharaoh, who once held Israel captive, does anyone remember his name? No one does. For the Lord has blotted out his name forever and ever. Yes, David's personal experiences are worth recounting, but so are the stories of God's faithfulness and his justice that went on before his time as well. For God who delivered him has delivered all of his people before that. You see, God, he never changes. The God who delivered his people then delivered David as well. And so he rejoices in knowing that God, he rules and he reigns and the nations amount to nothing. Their rule and their reign will come to an end for it has happened in the past and it will happen again. But in contrast to them, oh, the Lord's reign, it endures forever. Seven and eight, but the Lord, he sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. You see, David in his praise in God, he is doing more than just getting excited. You see, He's teaching us about God's nature, his character, his attributes, that he is eternal, that he is just, that he is righteous in all that he does. And he is like a king that stands alone. There is no other king who is like him. 
You see other kings, other presidents, other governors, they make promises. They tell you that they're gonna make life better. They promise that they are going to do justice. And one day even they promise that they will make the land great again. And yet if there's anything we should know about politicians, they make promises that they cannot keep. But this is not so of our God. For our God has the power to follow through with all of his promises. Therefore, the wicked ought to fear God. And not only that, but those who are oppressed ought to rejoice in knowing that God sees them, he cares for them, and he will execute justice for them. This is how he continues in verses nine and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I wanna, if you're one of those people who highlights your Bible or underlines or circles, you might, you might underline that phrase, times of trouble here in verse nine. For this is the same word that is used in David's complaint in 10.1 where God, he says, has hidden himself in times of trouble. But here, David knows that God, he is a stronghold for the oppressed in their time of trouble. And if you notice the similarity here in, in nine with that of what happens in 10, you'll maybe start to get a hint as to why these two Psalms go together so well. You see, David in Psalm 10, he's in a dangerous place. He's in a dangerous place of losing faith altogether and believing the lies of, of the enemy, yes, even Satan himself, and doubting the goodness of God. But here in 9, there's a foundation that is set before David before he, he comes to such trials. David, before he faces trials, before he knows the affliction of 10, before he does this, he knows the Lord by name. Those who know your name put their trust in you, verse 10 says. And we have a good reason to want to know the name of God, for God, he has shown us his name. Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, David, he knows the covenant name of God. And as such, he knows that he can put his trust in him, for he will not let the guilty go unpunished. So do you want to know how to endure such hardships? Do you want to know how to withstand the lies of the enemy? Well, then you need the Lord to graciously reveal himself to you so that you might be able to say with David, yes, I know the name of the Lord and therefore I can trust him for he will not forsake me. It is David's knowledge of God that causes him to praise him in verses one and two, and not only praise him by himself, but in verses 11 and 12, his praise breaks forth in the congregation. And he commands us these words, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. 
Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So after having recounted all of God, of who he is, then he commands us and the people of God there in the gate to praise the Lord. So David, yes, he's doing more than just singing a song. He is teaching us about who God is. And you can even circle that last line once again. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He, d- he rightly says that he does not forget them while the wicked all the while say in verse 11 of chapter 10, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So do you know the name of God the way David does? Do you know that the Lord is just in all that he does? Do you know that he is a shelter for you in times of trouble? Well, if you do, then you ought to join in with David and praise the Lord for all of his deeds. You see, since God is just, we should praise him and recount all of his deeds. Understand, the praises here of David are just an overflow of what he has experienced. The praises here are a result of what God has done. And I want to even point out the quality of his praise there at the very beginning of chapter 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. You see, there's no such thing as half-hearted worship. But worship and praise is always done with all of one's heart, all of one's soul, and all of one's strength. Yes, he is a loving God. And because he has loved us, oh, he is worthy of all our affection. And so we see this is just the the result of what God has done for David. It is bubbling up with passion as he exults in the goodness of God after having tasted and seen it. You see, just the other day, it was yesterday, my son was eating toast. It was toast with bread and jelly. And he just exclaimed, oh, yum. This is great toast. You see, no one needs to be taught to praise that which is excellent. I need to teach my son all kinds of other things. I need to teach him good manners. I need to teach him not to shove his sister. But you see, praise, it comes naturally to the one who experiences a good thing. And so it is even for David. He worships with all of his heart because he has experienced a good thing and what the Lord has done. Worship is. Worship is exclaiming that which is truly wonderful. And we don't just worship God. We can worship all kinds of other things as well. But may it not be said of us. May we worship the Lord alone, for he alone is worthy of praise. But what does this have to do with trusting God? What does this have to do with the trial that David is experiencing in chapter 10? Well, he's going to experience the trial in chapter 10, and he's going to triumph over it because he has experienced the goodness of God. And so kids, you ever wonder why we say the same old stories every single Sunday, perhaps even on Wednesday or maybe in your family during your family worship? Do you ever wonder why you need to hear the same stories over and over again? Surely you know that God strengthened David to kill Goliath. Surely you already know that God delivered Daniel from the mouths of the lion. Surely you know that God worked through Moses to defeat Pharaoh and his army. 
And surely you know that Jesus died and rose again so that you may live. And so why should you know these stories, but not just know them once, but recount them time and time again? One, because God is worthy of praise and he is worth all of our affection. And I know this of any kid here, if you ever win a game or perform well in anything, you can't wait to brag about it and boast about it and let everyone else know. So too, if you know what God has done for you, you can't help but recount the many mighty works that God has done time and time again. But furthermore, we recount these stories of God's faithfulness in the past who has delivered us so that we might not lose heart in the future when trouble hits. Which leads us into the next section of the Psalm, which is David's prayer. Yeah, David begins with praise, but praise leads to prayer. Look at verse 12, the end of his praise. He says this, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so, since this is true of God, David says, then I will cry out to him all the more in my affliction. Verse 13 and 14, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I might recount your praises that are in the gates of the daughter of Zion, that I may rejoice in your salvation. You see, since David knows the name of the Lord, he knows that he can call upon the Lord when he's in trouble. You see, it's difficult for you or me or any other common man to have an audience with a king. You see, kings, they're busy. They have limited amount of time to oversee their entire kingdom and all the people that they rule over. But such limits are not known by the king of kings and all his people can go to him and draw near to his throne of grace at any time, be it day or night. That's why Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what David is doing as he prays to the Lord. He is drawing near to the throne of grace, the throne where God executes justice. And that's what we do every time we pray as well. But more notable is, maybe just as notable, is the motive behind God's answering his prayer. The answering and delivering of David is motivated by the glory of God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my afflictions from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Why? So that I might rejoice, so, excuse me, so that I might recount all of your praises and that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Surely the Lord cares for us. Surely he hears our cries. But even more than this, we can bank on the fact that he will deliver us because it glorifies him when he does. And then David, he moves on, already putting into place what he knows from the past, God's deliverance. He, he incorporates it into his prayers. 15 and 16, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared and the works of their own hands. Notice everything in verses 16, 15 and 16, excuse me, are looking in the rear view mirror, looking at the past, recounting what God has done. And so 
knowing what God had done in the past, gives David this confidence. He will do it again. So 15 and 16 are past tense. 17 and 18 are anticipating what the Lord will do in the future. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And there again, his confidence in God for the future is founded on what he knows of God's character from the past. And so we too, since God is just, we can pray to him because he hears our requests. His very character demands it. His very nature promises that he hears us. And his glory is at stake in doing so. And so yes, when we praise God, we do so not mindlessly, but we praise him based on what we know, for we worship in spirit and in truth. But not only that, but even in our prayers, we can pray and make bold requests of God because once again, we know what kind of prayers honor him and please him. And so when we face trials, let our praise not be extinguished, nor our prayers, but instead when we face trials, let it fuel our praise and our prayers. And so pray at all times. That's what the apostle told us to do. Pray without ceasing, for he will not disappoint you. Psalm 910 guarantees it. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And furthermore, he will not forsake you because he is glorified by rescuing you. And so this is the bedrock. This is the foundation that is needed if we're going to survive the trials that come in the future. You see, throughout Psalm 10, it is the character of God that is repeatedly being brought into question by the wicked. Listen to them in 10.4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Verse six, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generation, I shall not meet adversity. And verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten he has hidden his face. He will never see it. Why do the wicked believe these things of God? Well, Psalm 9 tells us why. 9.17 tells us that they have forgotten God, forgotten his power, forgotten his justice, forgotten that nothing goes past him unnoticed. And so they think that they will never meet adversity and that God will never punish them for their wickedness. But David, he does not join in with the notions of them who believe that God is not, or maybe perhaps that God just doesn't care. But at the close of Psalm 10, David returns to what he knows. You can see the rest of the chiasm right here. It should come as to no surprise. But you, you'll see in verses 12 through 15, he returns back to prayer just as he did there in 9, 13 through 20. And then by the close of the psalm, David is gonna praise God all the more 
because once again, he knows God will execute justice against the wicked. And so after questioning God, after questioning why he has abandoned him, oh, he doesn't stay there, but instead he puts into practice that which he knows and he goes to God in prayer. Listen in verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Again, the same language that we've already learned from 9.12 and 9.19, that the Lord, he does not forget the cry of the, the afflicted. And so the very same prayer in 9.19 is echoed again. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And then he corrects their words. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the father of this. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. How will you escape from your trial? How will you escape from whatever circumstance, whatever pit, whatever slew of despond you are stuck in? You better know who your God is. And a knowledge of your God ought to cause you to cry out to him for help. And after having cried out to God for justice, you see David, he puts his faith to practice and immediately begins to praise the Lord, just as he has done in the past. Verses 16 through 18, the Lord is king forever and ever the nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So we can know this. Since God is just, we do not need to despair when we are perplexed. You see, David, he was strengthened in this. God graciously revealed himself to David. And so David, he stayed there near to God, knowing God, loving God, enjoying God, praising God, praying to God. And when he met trials, oh, it became the means of grace by which he would be able to come out of the slew of despond so that he might not lose the faith. But what David knew of God was just a small glimpse of God's glory. He saw through a veil, but today we have an advantage that David did not have. You see, God, he has revealed himself to us through his son, by his spirit. And so, Paul, he tells us, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Certainly the cross of our Lord shows us this best of all. You know how Israel praised Jesus in the triumphal entry 
for they believed that he came to bring an end to all the wicked and unjust men, those Romans who had oppressed them and abused them and had caused all kinds of suffering for them. And yes, even more than this, we see throughout the Gospels, even before the triumphal entry, the people who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, they cried out to him that he might put their suffering to an end, that he might deliver them in their trial and trouble. But there at the cross, all of a sudden, Jesus' disciples are left perplexed not much different than David was there in Psalm 10. But we know that the cross is not the end of the story. For on the third day, he arose from the grave. And that God was using even the cross for something far more wonderful than the disciples could have ever imagined. Far more wonderful than even if he were to simply put the wicked Romans to death. For in doing so, he delivered his people from their own wickedness without having to justly condemn them. Yes, even us for our own sins. So we should know in light of the gospel, in light of the character of our God who has given us his son, he who gave us his son, he will give us more than just him. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so picking up in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show something that surpasses the, that, excuse me, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Oh, Christian, you will face trouble. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world. And even if we might face death, we know this, death, it does not have the final word. For Jesus, he told us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And instead of David asking God questions, the Lord, he asks us a question. Do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, if you are suffering, cry out to the Lord for help, for he hears you, he will not forget you. And know this more than anything, if you are suffering, the Lord will bring justice and the Lord will raise you on the last day. So may we eagerly hope for him and place our faith in him. Amen. Let's pray.